0: This week, Tony La Russa. There's a saying that the worst players make the best managers. We're in Las Vegas and just outside San Francisco with the baseball Hall of Famer who contemplates a return. I understand you might have come close to considering going back to managing.
1: Addresses the steroid era. Fans don't trust. Uh, they don't trust any of us. And shares regrets as a father. It's a mistake. That's unexplainable inexcusable screwed up plus how la russa is hitting home runs
0: at the top celebrity related charity all that's coming up next right here on the in-depth with graham bensinger podcast your parents uh, met in a local cigar factory uh, before they had you and your
1: sister Uh, what were their backgrounds Uh, my mom is of spanish descent my dad's sicilian i think in our families they were born in the United States. Most of their you know brothers and sisters, mother, and dad, were born in either Spain. And for that reason, on my bucket list, I like to visit Spain and, and uh, Sicily. and haven't had a chance to do it yet. Uh, you
0: grew up in Tampa. Uh, Spanish was the language spoken first at your house because it was that of your mom's and uh, grandma. What do you recall from the apartment your family lived in above the service station growing
1: up? When I was three or four years old, we moved into a housing project. Uh, it was a little small. And from there, we moved into this uh, above a service station on Columbus Drive and 12th Street, Nibor City. It was a, service, uh, a fire station right across the street, which you know, as a kid, you know, every time they, the bell started, Blown and you know, the sirens started, you know, I thought that was a big adventure.
0: Uh, your dad, when you got to middle school, he became a, a dairy uh, delivery man. Um, how did that change the family's financial situation?
1: You know, not not a lot, you know, my dad had worked uh, at Wholesome Bakery as a as a baker. Before that, he used to drive the the old ice truck. He was always doing physically demanding labor. Uh, I remember when he went to, to work for Florida Dairy, it was a family-owned dairy. Sunday was his day off. You know, I, I'm not handy at all. And other, other dads taught their sons how to fix this and that. I never begrudged it because my dad worked so hard on Sunday, man, he just like oh, getting ready for the next six days. The thing I remember the most, besides how hard he worked and, and never complained, just did it, was that the family that owned the dairy when my father passed told me that he was the most honest employee he had ever had what do you think he taught you mostly i remember him just really working hard when i was 10 we found a uh, a two-bedroom home in in west tampa uh, a block away was a, a, a playground mcfarland park that means that meant during the summer every day all the guys in the neighborhood, you know, we got there at nine, and we stayed till five playing pickup games.
0: And when you ran out of uh, baseballs,
1: sometimes you would uh, st- like steal the balls from. We were just borrowing, borrowing them. We were going to return them. Except by the time we returned them, they they threw them away. and Then we got them. We got them. <laughs> There you go. But uh, the security guard was there was uh, he'd come running after us, you know, and he'd keep yelling. He said, "I know your parents. I'm going to tell your parents. You can't get away with this." We run away and hide from him and then watch the game and you know he never followed up
0: the the last question about your dad there's a story i think you recall one day being on the delivery truck with him Mm -hmm. um where you two have a heart to heart about your future and
1: what he hopes you can achieve what do you remember him saying i can remember that uh i know how hard he worked and, and we we had what we needed i offered as I was going to high school, you know, to spend time during the summer working, and he told me, he said, "Look, as long as you're serious about your studies, and you're pursuing your this baseball career, then, you know, we're okay." I didn't have to work, <clears throat> but he made it clear that I wasn't getting a free pass. Could not neglect the studies and could ne- neglect, you know, the opportunity that I had, because it, it as it turned out, his brothers would always tell me that when he was growing up. He was a real good-looking catcher, and they always thought that he could be like Al Lopez, but his dad would never let him play, and he was going to make sure I had the opportunity. So the the one thing that he agreed okay was in my uh, three years in high school. You know, I would go out Friday night like most young kids, but Saturday morning about uh, 5 o'clock, he'd come by in his truck and and he'd pick me up and I'd do the rest of the route. Uh, I know he appreciated it, but it was a, a small price to pay for the opportunities that uh, he and my mother, and you know, she was, it's been told, you know, at that um, place on above the service station, there was an alley with rocks, and she would throw me balls and I'm catching ground balls. So I used to have pretty good hands and got used to catching bad hops because I'd take the ball off the rocks, but she played catch with me by the hour, so. Wonderful, wonderful mother and father. It
0: was only Hall of Famer Robin Yount, uh, Alex Rodriguez and yourself uh, that started at shortstop in, in the big leagues at 18 years old. I- explain though how a softball game with friends oh. forever altered the course of your career. And you at the time were top prospect coming out you have like a hundred thousand dollar package which is huge at the time they're giving you a car paying for uh, education and yeah
1: so uh, that first year it's in the book you know I hit 250 went to bat 44 times got 11 hits every first pitch fastball I swung at it and I got 11 hits so you know they thought I was gonna be and who knows I think if I'd had a, a, a healthy arm I, I could have been a decent utility player in a major league I wouldn't have been a star so I went, and all my high school buddies, we, we had slow-pitch softball. Uh, we called it, it was called flop league. You play on Thursday night and Sunday afternoons. And I can remember one time I was having dinner, and we were playing that day in McFarland Park across the street. And, you know, it got late. It was kind of cold and, and rainy a little bit. And I ran out there, got there just as the first pitch, so I, I just literally got out of the car, ran out of position, first ball's in the hole. I go kind of like, yeah, I'd throw it. Oh, so tore that tendon and in those days, all they did was put you in a sling. So to this day, if you touch it in a scar tissue, it hurts. And for the rest of my career, I went from, you know, having a good arm to flipping the ball from here. They moved me to second base. And as I got into coaching and I could see how an infielder that had limitations throwing, I'm surprised. I, you know, I, I sat at the bench in the big leagues for two or three years at times. Uh, I'd have never given me a job. You can't throw, you can't throw.
0: You spent a lot of time in the minors. For uh, the 16 years you played, 12 of those off-seasons, uh, you were always getting <clears throat> your education going to school. Um, why?
1: Well, the first one, the night that I graduated um, from high school, I was 17 years old, June. <clears throat> those days, no draft. So all the teams that weren't interested come to the house so there were at that time i don't know those 16 17 18 teams make an offer uh i had a scholarship offer from florida state and my mother wanted me to do that she was big into education it would have been a great opportunity had a guy named danny litweiler that was a legendary coach looking back at you know i I can't you know the money was helpful helped us but if you just took the money aside it would have been better because i'd matured the only credit i do i did and i do give myself for my professional career was I must have loved the game. I had toughness I didn't know because my first six years, five years, I broke stuff. Dislocated my shoulder twice, got cracked in my knee, tore muscle in my back, had this with the arm. And I played another 10 years. So why? Because I loved it and you know I could deal with the pain. But the deal with the night that they offered the bonus, my dad and me, we, I wanted to sign, he wanted me to sign. The, uh, my, my mother wanted me to go to school. So there was a college scholarship uh, uh, portion as part of the deal. And I promised her that I would go to college. Looking back, I, you know, uh, I was taught right. You make a commitment, which is a promise. I made a promise, so I did it. But uh, I remember a lot of times driving, you know, trying to stay awake, going to the ballpark or from school. And then the last part was a law school. And I realized I wasn't going to make it and I needed to get another career. Got it. And
0: your uh, longtime second wife, uh, Elaine, was telling me the other day when I was talking to her, you guys moved something like 57 times because you were playing one place during the year. Off-season, you were at school, bouncing Mm -hmm. around. And by Elaine's accounts, you guys were borderline destitute, poor. Um,
1: Certainly couldn't travel, couldn't buy a house. Um, What did that teach you? When I started law school in 73, I played two more years And then I played three years as a player coach. So during those law school years, I mean, we wouldn't go to a mall. Because Elaine said, you know, why go to a mall and I feel like I want that dress or this dress. So we stayed away from the mall. So, you know, we had nothing extra. But the investment was to be an attorney. And there are a lot of times, I'm not sure what she told you, but she thought she was marrying a lawyer, not a, a manager. But... Um, Did she really believe that at the time? Yeah, I believed it, too. Except in 79, you know, in that second year in AAA, the opportunity of the White Sox came. And Mr. Vex said, I won't give you this job in 80 unless you take the bar. Because, you know, I'd have bet everything I owned that I'd have been a lawyer. I mean, I I never knew I was going to survive 30-plus years. Nobody
0: knew. And if I could back up momentarily, when times were tight, um, what did that
1: teach you about money and savings? Well, when you ain't got it, you can't spend it. Then uh, the beautiful part about Elaine is it wasn't like she was uh, raised with all the niceties and a lot of the luxuries. So we, we were well aware we had been raised where, you know, you have what you have and that's what you spend. Uh, you don't complain and if you want something better, you work at it. So you learn the value. You think about, you know, her in, in uh, law school making cl- her own clothes uh we were always eating at some cut rate you know it was this place had the, the deal so my last two three years AAA, as a player and then three as a manager you know made 15 grand and so being careful with that uh, we were able to get through the winter didn't incur a law school debt uh, just as long as we were careful so
0: your wife's eight months pregnant um, and all of a sudden the the phone rings and uh, a big move could potentially be in store for you. How does that upend your guy's world? I'd imagine she was less than thrilled at the time or at minimum conflicted.
1: Um, Well, the whole thing is a fairy tale. We had already decided, you know, two or three years of, if nothing's happening, I'm going to be a lawyer. You can't. They offer the job. Elaine's got, she's a a month from delivering. We had already... Made plans to stay in Des Moines. Roland Heumann, GM, calls at like 1 o'clock. In fact, she had just had an appointment with the doctor. We were having lunch. I called back. I thought they were going to bring up the catcher. She said, no, we're going to call a press conference at, uh, at 3 o'clock. And we're going to announce you as a manager if you want it. If not, you have no now three to accept it. If not, we're going to get somebody else. So I go back and I says, well, guess what? It shocked her. I mean, I'm in shock. Um, we have a little different... Memory of that. I think she says that, that uh, she argued against it, but I, I wouldn't have, there's no way that I believe that because if she had said no, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have taken it. I think what the, the truth is that she probably didn't want it to happen because she didn't want to be, you know, she's it's her first kid. It has a great ending though. At that point, just a few years before, there's this amazing group of ladies in Chicago that started La Leche League. So Mary White, who was one of the original seven La Leche contacts, the White Sox, her husband is Greg White, who was the physician that had all the expertise. So they meet Elaine, and Elaine meets La Leche League ladies. Dr. Greg White is the guy that catches Bianca when she's born. So it was, uh, it didn't make sense to move, but it had an unbelievable ending because Elaine got to meet these legendary ladies and uh, and Dr. Greg White, and then a couple of years later when, when Devin was born, his son, Bill, Dr. Bill, he caught the babies. So it's impossible that it could have happened the way it happened, but it happened.
0: Why do you believe that if you were a better player, you
1: wouldn't have been as good of a manager? Well, that's a saying. There's a saying that <clears throat> The worst players make the best managers. And there's a certain truth to it because if you survive as as a player, it's not the most talented. You survive by really digging in and understanding the big and the little of the entire game. But what I've learned over time, and and I'll give you the proof, it's not if you were really good or really bad, it's it's how much you love the game so that you want to learn it. And there's a great legendary coach with the Cardinals, uh, George Kissel. Because my last year as a player coach, I was in St. Louis. And I told him that I wanted to manage. He said, well, you're gonna be a lawyer, but if you want to be a baseball guy, how much do you love the game? And he gave me that. You love the game? I do. Then you got to want to learn it. And by the way, what happens, the more you learn, the more you love it. And that's an eternal cycle, which is absolute gospel. Your passion for military
0: history your wife sees connectivity between that and your role in leading a
1: big league team. How about you? I was a reader early on, which led into this love affair that I have with books. During the winter, I read all nonfiction. I read as much about leadership as I possibly could. During the summer, I wanted to rest my brain when the game was over and read fiction, just... Well, if you read about leadership, the ones that have uh, the most impact, most impactful, are military leaders. Because if you're the leader of a corporation, or if you're the leader of a baseball team, or a baseball orga- or a sporting organization, what's at stake is success and failure, but it's not life or death. So if you study military leaders, it's amazing how their principles, on how they preserve in, in our country American values, and, and how they develop this brotherhood of, of, of fighting men who do the thing for their country and for themselves they carry over into managing a team or managing whatever in, in your own personal life with your family i don't want to sound like lou gehrig but as a manager nobody been luckier than me i've I managed with three organizations it was perfect hard work creates luck too no, no yeah but there are a lot of guys who work hard that are not supportive we were supported very very fortunate the other good fortune is when you're around as a manager for 30 plus years, you meet a lot of people, so I have this amazing group of military men that's why uh, I was so upset when they, when they kneel down the NFL because it's not that you have, don't have something that you dislike. there's a different way to protest it. When you kneel down, you disrespect the flag, the country and the anthem and there men are are men and women are fighting and dying for that. you know you just it's the wrong way protest so what I've learned and I've had this eternal uh, debt which has led to pet and vets can't do enough for them I still read as much about the military as I can what are the qualities and actions in your opinion that make a good leader they've changed with the times if you want to lead today you have to lead from a basis of personalizing relationships the first thing we do is you create a relationship of respect and trust and caring between your, you and your staff and the players among each other. And it's like, you know, a family brotherhood, you know, the greatest coach in the history of team sports, Coach Belichick, what he does on the relationship basis, that gets established before you ever talk about, hey, this is how we practice, how we play. It, it really is, it's, it's common sense if you think about it and you understand that priority, but making it happen, You have to be real about earning respect, and you got to start at zero every year. You got to be very real about trust. If they don't trust you, they won't follow you. And you got to show them you care. If you do those things, that's why I'll give you a, a, a truism. The career wins, yeah, I enjoy them. The rings, I enjoy. The Hall of Fame, I enjoy. What I enjoy the most is that I have 33 years of brotherhood in Chicago, Oakland st louis and what that means and i, I see it more now as i'm retired getting around when the players in those teams see each other they embrace family they see a coach they see me we embrace because we had that brotherhood and that's why we had decent amount of success 1992
0: your oakland days that you're managing or are playing with toronto blue jays american league championship series you mistakenly leave your daughters uh young girls
1: um what happened I mean, I don't want to explain it in a way that I'm making an excuse because there's no excuse for it. So I'm that right ahead. It's a mistake that's unexplainable, inexcusable, screwed up. But, I mean, I got really into what the score was. And if there was something when the game was over that we got beat that I felt that I had contributed to the loss by missing – a trick, or doing something that was wrong. And that night, you know, I'm, I was just, I messed up, whatever, I can't remember what I was, but I was just beating myself so much. You know, I get in the car and I drive home and I'm about halfway there and went, forgot something. <laughs> <laughs> Where were back, they? Back in the back of the ballpark. Well, probably the first, I'd say seven, eight years of my career. I mean, I was, I was way too invested in trying to do the job right and carrying stuff to the point that I have never forgiven myself. And I think they have forgiven me where I shouldn't have. I mean, I'd be home and just thinking about it, and thinking about it, and and if there's a lesson to learn there, you know, once you do the best you can, you gotta turn the page. They're the priority. You know, this is the personal time. You know, Put it away, stupid, and then I quit being so stupid.
0: Well, how how do you think Back then, it impacted the relationship with the daughters.
1: Well, unfortunately, they probably got used to it, and they, you know, then they expected less and and uh, took it for what maybe that's the way it's supposed to be, including Elaine, you know, and and uh, tried to make up for it ever since. What, um your wife was telling me, and I don't know if
0: it's just they do it as a joke now, but. Um, that on Father's Day they will, yeah. uh, your daughters will send a card to your wife Elaine. Sure.
1: Why? Elaine did it by herself basically for 30 some years. And uh, I would, you know, I would, I, I could totally understand them thinking she was mother and father. You know, I think they are making a point of saying, we know how, how special you are. If you look at the number of hours that you have with that family, it's not very many so you ought to maximize every minute of it not do what i did which was have half my brain there and the other half i mean elaine would know she's like well i know what you're thinking about you think about your liner or something because she could just see me glazed or something and that i say that went on for you know seven eight nine years just bad why do you think she tolerated it i don't know probably you know we, we did get married i think she did love me and she knew i was doing something that, uh, you know, that I loved and looked like maybe, you know, we would have a,
0: a good life. How would you best explain the sacrifice that she made?
1: Uh, probably impossible for people to understand unless they take the time to think about 30 plus seasons, starting in spring training, by the way. So it's like about eight months depending if you play in October, where virtually every day it's you and your two girls with, with an occasional visitor who's your husband. So I regret that. And there was a couple, I mean, there's one in the book where she was sick, she had pneumonia and the team was struggling and like an idiot, you know, my sister at that time lived in t- you know, was living in Tampa and she came over and took care of her, two kids. I mean, what, what, what kind of message is that? What's more important? Chicago White Sox or your wife and children.
0: Did you bring up to her what you'd said to me about how, you know, she could have called you anytime and uh, said, enough's enough, come home, and that would have been it.
1: What do you think she said when I brought that, that up? At that point, she probably said she, you know, I, I think they enjoy not having me around is probably the, the answer. Well, she goes, oh, bull, there's no way. What, that I would have left? Yeah. Oh, no, she's wrong. Um, no. Uh, if they said go,
0: I'd have gone, you yeah. know. Um, I, but she also said, um, "How many people in their lives are actually given the opportunity to live their dream?
1: How could I possibly deprive them of that?" Well, I, I, I know that's true. She's expressed that, and uh, that's why, I, you know, I'll owe her forever. The BB
0: gun hmm. and chain link fence. Um, that uh, kind of the early uh, interest in animals or
1: how your thinking got changed? I think when ARF comes up and and the passion for the animals, the truth is you would think a movie would have created it to make it more dramatic. My mother, had as a young uh, girl, was bitten by a cat and the cat got away and they suspected rabies, so she had the injections in the abdomen, which traumatized her. So I was raised without a pet. And when I would visit relatives and they had a dog, I would, oh man, I want it. Uh, I remember there was a, a the neighbor, in, when we moved to West Tampa, he was a sergeant of the police force. And he had a, a Belgian shepherd ranger who patrolled the backyard, just barking and everything. And one of the happiest moments of my life, I'd go over there and just, talked to him, talked to him, and finally one day I just reached in and, and patted him. Then I realized what my mother was going through, and I shut up because I can understand, you know, having those kind of issues. Uh, the other one was um, a friend of mine had a BB gun, and there was a little sparrow, you know, five yards away, maybe a little farther. I don't know, how, how could I have picked it up, shot it, and hit the damn sparrow? I, you know, I'm, there it goes. And as soon as I hit it, I went. Uh, you know, you can't, you can't make this stuff up. I went, and I was just traumatized. I said, what the hell did I do? You know, this little bird, I love birds, you know. We used to have a canary. That was my pet. <laughs> not much of a pet, you know, just, but. So I remember seeing that, the, hey, that's it. Not a hunting, I'm not going to hunt. It's uh, just not me. So I, I met Elaine, and uh, she had this amazing poodle, vet, and this cat. I had underestimated the greatness of, of having a pet every day. I hope my whole time uh, I had this desire and then I met Elaine and, we, and then, from then we've gone nuts about having you know, rescued animals as part of the family. And so then it became Arf. Uh, how many animals do you have now? Well, you're only allowed so many, so, but you're allowed to foster. <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: and you know, because you probably pushed that number. Yeah. Well, we fought, you know, we have,
1: we have some foster cats and foster dogs, that, puppies that we bring in. and. When they're ready for adoption, you take them over to ARF. We have, you know, we walk the walk and we talk the talk. So uh, whether it's my wife and myself or our daughters and their husbands, you know, we are dedicated, passionate animal crusaders. Wait, so how many do you have? Well, it depends on what the foster numbers at the time. Okay. I don't Uh, don't wanna get in trouble. Oh, got it.
0: Recently underwent this like massive, I think, two-and-a-half-year renovation at your house, and uh, one of uh, your girl's old bedrooms has been turned into something else,
1: right? Oh, yeah, cat room. Before, our our cats had more of the run of the house when it was older. You know, we actually tore it down and, and rebuilt it. So now the cats have their own room. They have a little platform under the window. It may sound weird, but I love doing litter pans because you feel like you're doing something for the... Uh, the cat I love I love cats. I have I have one or two that if I walk through the door, they come like me, jump my arms. So I love dogs too. It's just and that's the probably the uh the beauty of ARF is that, you know, over the almost 30 years we've been able to get the uh this unconditional love and what that can mean. That wagging tail, it's it's magical. And uh that's become more and more a part of our life. Why did you become a vegetarian? Because Elaine told me how I was. She, <laughs> we were 77, my last year as a player coach here in, our, in New Orleans. I came back from a road trip. I looked at her, she's in tears and, hey, what's wrong? She said, I thought there was something wrong with our, our dog or cat. She said, I just watched this documentary on how veal gets to the, to the, to the restaurants and uh, you can do whatever you want to, but I'll never eat veal again if you're an animal rescuer can't be an animal rescuer and and uh and being consistent so pretty soon it was red meat then it was chicken and it was turkey and never liked fish and if there's an arf sponsored event there's no meat so it's consistent
0: i'd imagine early on when you were first a vegetarian and you're on the road not as many uh, vegetarian options then right because
1: there wasn't the same level of consciousness then when the game was over, your stomach is so messed up that I wasn't I hungry. Later on, you know, you, you establish friendship with all the clubhouse guys. And so, you know, pasta, I love pasta. So they would give me pasta or they'd give me something that, that I could eat that wasn't, uh, you know, that wasn't meat. But one of the hidden assets is once the season starts, you know, my stomach's churning. So it's not like I got the best appetite.
0: How would you best explain your wife's passion for animal rescue?
1: Uh, Deep-seated, completely uh, motivated and uh, inspired by it to the point where she's she has done I'll tell you a good analogy. I, I told you that one of the reasons that I survived and maybe thrived in baseball was a lesson from Kissel. Learn and love. And the more you learn, the more you love it, and the more you love it, the more you want to learn it. That's how Elaine is about, the, uh, the issues that confront when we first started, all the euthanasia numbers—the atrocious number of these beautiful dogs and cats, puppies, kittens that were being, you know, euthanized—so she is dedicated to knowledge. She's on that internet so until two, three in the morning, checking different places in in our country or the world about what's happening, uh, you know, animal abuses.
0: Explain how ARF got started.
1: Here, here's part of the story that's. If you had a movie about this, you'd say, oh, it's, it's Hollywood." It, and we had seen over the years that uh, there's a colony of feral cats underneath the stands at Oakland. Like there are a lot of places, and they feed on scraps. So we're playing the Yankees one night, and sure enough, out of the, the hole in the right field bullpen where the Yankees are, this calico cat comes running right to, the, right to dead center field. Roberto Kelly was in center field, and the play stops comes by the dugout, Yankees, comes all the way around, and there you see, by that time, the the fence is only like about four feet high. It started to get up, it was just exhausted. So there's a famous picture you'll see at the thing where the cat comes in front of our dugout and I step out and some of the guys behind me and I kind of faint with my foot and it goes into the dugout where there's a bathroom, goes in the bathroom, close the door. Sounds like a made up story, play the tape. Game was over. Oakland Animal Control comes, take the cat. I go upstairs. The phone rings. Elaine, what'd you do with the cat? I say I did the right thing. You know, protected it. Turn it over, Oakland Animal Control. She says, you know, Oakland, you know, they're they're really stretched. They're gonna kill that cat. Now I feel like crap again. First thing in the morning, I call the place and said, don't kill him. We'll come by. So all morning and, and through the afternoon, she's touring. The places that we donate to, and they're all jammed. So we decided that we were gonna start a small nonprofit. Interesting because of the three World Series years, we had just decided that our life was kind of crazy, we were gonna simplify our life. We decided to do it, and I asked Delay says, You know, this is not gonna simplify our life. I had no clue. <laughs> she says, We gotta do it. I said, Okay. She says, I've been thinking we should come up with a catchy name. I said, What do you got? She says, Well, how about Animal Rescue Foundation, ARF. I said, that's cute, you know, you try to top her. How about Bay Area Rescue Foundation? She says, think about that for a minute, MARF. <laughs> <laughs> so, you got it. And uh, February of 91, we started it. We've had a tremendous advantage over everybody else because of the free publicity. And within the first two or three weeks, the phone starts ringing off the hook with issues. And we knew, man, there is a need how have you seen it evolve over the years the original mission which was, was people rescuing animals and after about three years we running into a lot of people that love animals but they had other causes and there were articles about of uh, a dog or a cat bring them in the hospital help people's blood pressure and so forth so we came up with the second mission animals rescuing people we were able to reach out and not only help all these people but it glorified the value of a companion animal when i lose track of seven years ago we thought you know there's this one category of people which were veterans the suicide rates the ptsd issues so for pets and vets uh our executive director elena came up with we're saving lives at both ends of the leash because we get a dog that's and a veteran likes that we match them, up with a, match them up with a veteran. The veteran goes through the training. The difference about our program, we pay all the costs.
0: How much has the Pets and Vets program really propelled the foundation to even greater heights?
1: We knew if we wanted to, to spread the message, you know, have be more impactful <clears throat> beyond Northern California, we had to come up with something that had more of a na- national or- orientation. Pets and Vets will be the vehicle to really... I think, uh, dramatically impact both ends of the leash. And the number of veterans, the testimonials are, have, have, have totally inspired us early on to keep going and do more and more. And that, that, see, that's seriously motivating when you think about you know, the scale of 20 of these things in the next 5 or 10 years, then 50 of them you're talking about you know, a number of veterans are going to be serviced around the country. It's, it's a very simple process. So between our staff, our sponsors, our board, our volunteers, ARF has been, it's a terrific story. The group called Charity Navigator that evaluates... Important e- organization. Evaluates every nonprofit. They give you stars for your performance. Top is four. We just earned our 12th consecutive year of four stars. And the president writes, "Is less than 1% of charities in their history have qualified for 12 consecutive years. It, it equals a lot of momentum for our organization. We meet with people, they believe in us. Their belief forces us to commit to maintaining we're not gonna let anybody down. Explain the no kill movement and how the
0: euthanization rates have dramatically dropped from I think 1970, 23 million
1: animals were euthanized a year. The original shelters are public shelters. There's no bad people there. <clears throat> they're just overwhelmed. You know, you have animals coming in every day and you bring them in and you hope the owners show up. When they don't show up, you got to kill them. So the answer has always been a complement to that is the nonprofit that takes animals in and tries to get them adopted. Some of the nonprofits, if they're not successful, you know, they will euthanize. With this movement that's gone across the country and the success of the nonprofits, alleviating the public efforts, you see the the numbers drop. One of the pioneers, and I'm glad to say this, uh, there's a Dave Duffield, who was the original PeopleSoft guy, who was Workday. He and his wife, Cheryl, they formed the Duffield Foundation. They put like $270 million into a foundation that they sent out across the country to help they want to go no kill. And we were one of the first organizations they supported. They still support us. And uh, in the end, that's the goal. Every dog and cat, puppy, kitten that is born, should find a home where you don't, you don't kill any of them. And the numbers are in our favor. Got it. Um, In the remaining moments I have with
0: you, I want to get back to talking uh, notable moments. I believe it was the late 90s you recognized like widespread uh, steroid use in the minor leagues. And you yourself, I believe, addressed it with uh, minor league players.
1: In the big big leagues. The first telltale signs were guys that were getting stronger very quickly. You saw them at the end of the season by the time of spring training or if they were getting stronger and not working. When that was happening, a bunch of us sent it upstairs. Upstairs sent it to Major League Baseball. Well, the media has really punished C-League, and they punished a lot of us for not knowing more about it. What could you do? You pushed it up. The union said no. So, uh, you know, it's a really difficult area. It's an area that's not trusted. Talk about trust. Fans don't trust. Uh, They don't trust any of us. So what I'm telling you, you know, you can believe it or not believe, but it. it's the truth. When we identified somebody on our club that we thought was using that stuff, we reported it. We did not accept it. All we know is Dave McKay ran a, a pure program in our, in our no doubt in my mind, in anybody's mind. What you did on your private time, we don't, we're not policemen, we don't go watch them. I mean, you remember the the stuff, you know, you get acne on your back, you know, you have potential impotency. That's why I, you know, one of my favorite examples to bring out is Mark McGuire, who's been, in my opinion, uh, very seriously tainted and unfairly. Uh, Mark agreed that he used a little bit for a short period of time. Most of the stuff that he used, that yeast extract, he used HDH for his heels, it was a prescription Well, he's had five children, triplets and two boys, since he retired.
0: What was the hardest part for you of watching McGuire testify
1: on Capitol Hill? Trying to explain what he did, um, which in my opinion was a great majority was legitimate, would not have gone over well. He just was not gonna admit, he wasn't gonna say that he didn't do what he did a little bit of. I also know that Mark is a very private guy, very uncomfortable in that situation. I felt bad for him because I know who he is and what he, and uh, the quality of the man, personally and professionally. I think it's a blip on the radar, and uh, I said that, and you know I've been accused of uh, blind eye, but I don't think so.
0: So when looking at Hank Aaron's all-time home run record versus Barry Bonds or you know Roger Maris's single-season home run. Right- home run record versus what Maguire Bonds would have set its.
1: um... That's one of the favorite questions that you asked. When I see the home run hitters today. I think to myself they don't understand the advantages they have and they don't appreciate the advantages they have to the disrespect generally of the history of the game and the great sluggers of the past my point is hank aaron and whatever home run here you wanted to pick in these days under these conditions would hit more home runs than these young guys are thinking they're 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 uh, the gift to baseball is that still the record in your mind I'm just saying if, if those guys hit in these conditions, yeah. they would hit more. And, and the way that the ball is and the type of ballparks, the type of pitching you face, uh, the type of, of uh, retaliation that you're not allowed, Hank Aaron would hit, would, would be the best home run hitter around today.
0: Your fondest memory from McGuire's 70 home run seasons, what?
1: Uh, I had a lot of my number one impression was he got to 62 first and Sammy was behind him as they got into the last month. Sammy took the lead going to the last weekend by one home run. That was one of the great, in my opinion, Michael Jordan, whatever sport, whatever clutch producer McGuire's performance that last weekend hit five. Knowing if he didn't, it would have been humiliating to lose the thing, and I don't want to embarrass him. So the time the night was where I said, Mark, get some rest, I'm gonna write you in there, and I'll be watching you. If it looks to me like you're beat, I'll get you out of there right away, but you gotta, I can't, you just can't miss that game. Bam, 69. So he comes up in the seventh inning. He said, man, how much more? He says, okay, one more at bat. And I, when, you go, when you have it, go to first base, and I'll take you out at the people. BAM! There's 70. That's my number one Mark McGuire. I'll say one more thing, because I want to get this guy in the Hall of Fame. I want people to know that not just the champion he is. At the end of the one season, he had 29 home runs and 300 at bats. Had a bad back. 29 and 300 at bats. Then you figure out during the winter, he gets his back better. Bill DeWitt, the owner, gave him a contract for 15 million bucks a year for two years. That's $30 million. Most guys, Sign it, and for two years they've done the best they could. mcguire turned to bank and says, I can't play to that level, Bill. Walked away from $30 million. Now, if that's not integrity, I, I don't I don't know one that is. That's Martin mcguire Uh your mom
0: passed away at the height of mcguire's uh record setting. Uh, month um, in er- early September, which had to be challenging, but between dealing with the family issues and being on a front row seat uh, to history. And then fast forward to uh, 2002, your dad passes away, your pitcher, Daryl Kyle, passes away, the team legendary broadcaster, and your friend, Jack Buck, passes away. It's the midway point in the season, and you're sitting at your desk. What do you
1: do? The night the McGuire hit the home run against the Cubs, my mother was buried. And one of our owners, a really good friend, David Pratt, who's still my friend, had a plane. And uh, my dad says, look, when this thing in the service is over, you don't spend the time with the family. You get on that plane, and get back with that game. So I was there, and I watched him hit the home run. Darryl was tied for first with the greatest teammates we've ever had. Thursday in Seattle. He's pitching, and he's struggling, and it's just, you know, he's not following the game plan. It's about the third, or fourth inning, and I go out to get him. I'm thinking he's mad at me because I took him out. Now it gets to be Sunday after the game. He's pitching Tuesday, I think, you know. So I called Daryl. I said, I want to see you in my office. He comes to my office, and I said, look, man, I don't know why you're upset at me. I mean, you were struggling that day. He says, oh, No. You don't understand, not you. I'm so embarrassed with the way I'm letting my team down. It's hard for me to look at anybody. I says, Darryl, look man, you're getting better and better. These guys love you, they trust you. Go out there Tuesday, pitches a game. I mean, this is stuff you can't make up. Beast the Angel, we go into first place. Earlier that, maybe the day before, Jack Buck gets buried and there's a picture of, there's Daryl in that front row. Fast forward, he dies on Saturday. His wife tells me, this one amazing lady, Flynn, man, I don't know what you told my husband, when he came back Sunday, he's a new man. So I think to myself going back, suppose I'd have been stubborn and played the uh, leader card and say, you know, if you don't wanna talk, I don't wanna talk. Then this guy would have died and not have known that conversation. So I look back, and I think the value of personalizing a relationship when you're a leader, and it's the hardest way to lead because you've got to do it every day if you do it right. The value is not just you get guys to buy into the team and play, it's that you build that caring and the respect and trust. If I had not been taught that that was a leadership role, I probably would have mugged that chance. Talk about regrets. That guy would have died without knowing what well, we all thought of them. So, what about 2002? Oh man, it was such a incredibly difficult year. Our guys were just in despair. We voted to play Sunday night because Daryl never missed a start. We played, the Cubs beat us. So we went through about 10 days or two weeks. The club was just, as a leader in our coat, you know, we're thinking, hey man, I, I can't be yelling at these guys. I mean, these guys are they're worrying about Daryl, they're worrying about the family, they're worrying about their own mortality. From the day he died to the end of the season, we won. His number 57. We won 57 games and won the division. Now, that's, that's eerie stuff, man, but that's all true. We went against the Giants, and I was convinced that that team was destiny. We were going to beat the Giants, we were going to the World Series, and we lost to this day. The, 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 the series in October that I most regret was losing to the Giants because our club deserved to keep going. Because we were dedicating it to Jack and uh, Daryl. 2006, you
0: do win the World Series. Uh, you're in your office. Your sister comes in after that Game 5 World Series championship victory.
1: You remember what she says? So, uh, something about my mom and dad, maybe? Uh, you're number one. Oh, yeah. That's what my dad would always say. Yes, he always tell me how good I am. You're the best. I said, "Well, Dad, we're in last place by ten games. So, oh, you're still the best." <laughs> baseball back to Nashville. Uh, well, I got to be careful with that one because you know I'm employed. All I all I said was, "We're bringing baseball to Nashville." Yeah. You know, at some point, each each league, each league has fifteen teams, and sixteen makes sense. So, there's talk of expansion, of two teams. They're also talking about having to relocate a franchise, and they're looking at the different candidates. One of the Places where I've met the people is Nashville. I'm, partly because of ARF. We've had, you know, the show we do in January, Trace Atkins is coming. We've had incredible country music support. So I'm a great believer in what happens in Nashville and I've seen them grow. If something happens where there's a, t, you know, there's an expansion possibility, I think they would be, to me, a, an outstanding candidate. So I voiced that, but this is where it's very important. I don't do anything, not anything. I'm not not involved in any meeting. I don't go anywhere where I'm actively involved with them. I'm just a support. I am just I'm a believer in what they do. How did
0: the Angels deal
1: come about? Well, you know, I had one more year. I had one more year with the, with the Red Sox. um, And they would like me to come back. Uh, The difficulty of coast to coast, you know, I did for two years your family is here and you're training in in florida you don't ever get back these two teams ask permission and the, the red sox said we'd like to just stay but we're going to grant permission uh, the angel situation i have great respect for uh, for arty moreno and, and that team there's some there's a little extra responsibility as far as the advising part and so i'm very fortunate that it worked out now you're reunited
0: with albert pujols um, i called him
1: yeah my baby boy what did he say Well, he was happy, I mean, I keep going back to it. You know, we're family, Albert's like a son. Uh, I said, it's not the wins, man. The wins happen, relationships are what you live with. You said the worst part
0: about being upstairs now as an executive is the game starts and there's nothing you can do, and it's a horrific feeling. Torture. Describe
1: that. Which is worse, horrific or torture? I think torture. When you manage 5,000 games, you always feel like you have a responsibility. Maybe there's something you or the coaching staff can do to help put the players in a position to win a game. When you're upstairs, you can see the game, and you may have that idea, and you can't do anything. And uh, not going to manage, and I'm not ready to leave the game. So you sit up there and you take the torture. Somebody close to
0: you told me you mismanaging. managing. Uh, how true?
1: Uh, I, I, I missed the immediacy of the game. I missed the whole thing of pulling the team together from day one, making them a true brotherhood, competing to see if you can get to October and see how far you can get. I, I, I missed that. So I missed the competition. But I don't miss it so much that I want to go back. I understand you
0: might have come close this off season to considering going back to managing. Um, Why did you decide against it?
1: It's it's not your age that dictates whether you should manage. We had a very proactive coaching staff, great coaches, that really embraced information. We believe in its place. And what's happened is the game is being overwhelmed by percentages and numbers. And the value of the coaches, scouts, and observational analytics, you you watch and you see, it's being disrespected. So the game is really not as entertaining right now. Percentages don't take into account the head, the heart, and the guts of a player that day. So there are times you say, man, I, I want, I'd like to get back and help correct the balance. That's, that's you know, sometimes you, after you watch a man, I'd like to get back because I know that playing the game correctly, you, you'll win more than what they're doing now. But I'm not managing, so it's not strong enough to where I go back. Yeah, how close were you? Put it this way. Pitching coach Dave Duncan, greatest pitching coach in the history of the game. He's in Tucson. If, and I kind of ran about, hey, Duncan, you want to come back? He said, I can't. If Duncan had said yes, then it would be possible. But Dunk said no. If he had come back, I would have probably asked Arizona, let me, let me take Dave McKay. We were to, Dave Duncan and I were 29 years. McKay and I were 26. I would need that supporting cast like I always had. Believe me, I wasn't a good enough manager to do it without them.
0: Thank you very much. All right. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at Graham Bensinger, and visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.